Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're tackling one of the most important names when it comes to democracy of Athens, Greece, Pericles. We'll also get to learn a bit about what democracy was back in ancient Greece and how it's different from modern democracy. Spoiler alert, it's exactly what you'd expect from the ancient world. If you haven't heard the name Pericles before, I wouldn't blame you, but you definitely know something he contributed to Athens. You might also be thinking, but Chris, this show is about rulers. How can a democracy have a ruler if it's a government ruled by the people? I'll get into that because Pericles' position compared to the rest of the rulers I've covered so far is kind of different, being less of an official ruler and more of a cultural leader. He was a general at one point, but I'm going to be focusing more on his time during the height of Athenian democracy. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back to the 4th century BCE into the turbulent days of ancient Greece in By the People, but mostly Pericles. <laughs> The period we're dealing with in Greek history is referred to as Classical Greece. This period from the 5th through the 4th century BCE lasts from what is essentially the rise of Athenian democracy to the death of Alexander the Great in the late 4th century BCE. And no, Alexander the Great will not feature in the story of Pericles. This is a time period you are probably thinking of when you think of ancient Greece. It was a glorious time for art and architecture, as well as philosophy, science, and war. Pericles' story, at least the beginning, is sandwiched between two very important wars in Greek history, the Greco-Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars. We'll get more into the latter in a bit, but the Greco-Persian Wars are incredibly important for our modern-day concepts of Western and Eastern culture. As you can assume by the name, this war was fought between the Greeks and the Persians, the empire of ancient Iran, in 490 and 480 BCE. If you've ever heard of the Battle of Marathon, which is where we get the term for the race, that happened during the Greco-Persian Wars. One of the other most famous battles in the war, perhaps one of the most famous in history, is the Battle of Thermopylae. If that name isn't familiar to you, maybe it'll ring a bell if I say it has something to do with the number 300. But that's all I'll say for Thermopylae. I definitely want to do a future episode over Leonidas and Xerxes. Persia was an unstoppable force at this time in history, rising up from what we now know as Iran and completely taking over the Middle East. Greece's ability to hold back the tide not once, but twice, stalled Persia's attempt at possibly taking over Europe. While history wrote its course two and a half thousand years ago, we'll never know how expansive the Persian Empire could have gotten. But that's not to say that the Persians don't get their own share of victories. In fact, one of Emperor Xerxes' most powerful victories was Persia's takeover of Athens. However, the city would survive and reclaim its place in history as the pinnacle of the grand experiment of early democracy. After the war, Athens would find itself home to some of the most famous names in ancient Greece, Sophocles, Hippocrates, Herodotus, and Socrates. It was a period of time where the citizens of Athens could make major decisions. 
while there were other democracies in Greece, Athens stands as our major example. But one man stands above all Athenian citizens during this time, someone who Greek historian Thucydides would refer to as the first citizen of Athens. Before we begin the story of Pericles, I think we should first talk about Athenian democracy as a whole. What is democracy? Simply put, it's a system of government where the people decide on the laws of the land. There are different kinds of democracies, but we'll get into that later. The English word democracy comes from the Greek word demokratia, which in turn comes from the two words demos and kratos. Kratos is the Greek word for power. If you're familiar with the God of War video game series, the main character's name probably makes a lot more sense now. Themos, on the other hand, has a couple of meanings. The first meaning is more or less village, though not necessarily in the way we think of the word village today. Instead, according to Dr. Christopher W. Blackwell, we'll think of a themos as a voting precinct. It's the smallest administrative unit in ancient Greece. Themos can also just mean people, but in this sense, you'd have to actually think of people more in the sense of a member of a themos. Ah, but this is the ancient world, you might be thinking. You're saying that just anyone who lived in a themos was able to partake in the government? And you would not be wrong for thinking that. No, not everyone was able to partake in Athenian governance. In order to be considered a themos, in this case meaning a member of a themos, you had to be a man, go figure, who was at least 18 years old, not a slave, and could prove that both of your parents were Athenian citizens. If you fit all of those qualifications, you could join the assembly. The assembly is what most people would probably imagine when you think of a true democracy. It was where the themos could gather and discuss matters of the state. Anyone had the ability to speak, and everyone had a vote. But this wasn't always the case. Athens, like most other places in history, was once ruled by a single leader. Well, actually three, but that's semantics. These three leaders were known as the Archons. There was one Archon, the eponymous Archon, who was the chief magistrate of the city and what we would usually think of as the political leader. The Polemarch, who was head of the military, and finally there was the Archon Vasilios, who was in charge of religious orders and homicide trials. Additionally, there was an organization called the Areopagus, which was made up of former Archons. The Areopagus functioned like a senate, but more in the Roman sense where it was a bunch of older upper-class men who would discuss political issues. And actually that doesn't sound too far off from the American Senate. This all changed in 594 BCE when Solon, the eponymous archon at the time, decided to give every Themos political power. This was the formation of the assembly. He also set up a body of lawmakers called the Vuli. This group functioned as a sort of legislative branch of government in which they drafted propositions that the assembly would then vote on. So what happened to the Areopagus? Well, at first it was kind of just there as a bunch of former politicians giving political advice to the people and making sure things didn't fall completely apart. Then, in 462 BCE, it was demoted into a criminal court 
though it was still made up of aristocrats, and soon after that, the Areopagus was opened up to members of the lower classes, essentially getting rid of the sole power of the rich in Athens, though that's not to say that the rich didn't have any sense of power. Athenian democracy would continue to flourish and face hardships over its course of existence. Several times, there were successful attempts at taking away the power of the people, but democracy always seemed to find a way back. It was during such a wave of democracy that we find ourselves jumping into Pericles' story. Even though we're not going as far back as we were in the last episode with Narmer, Pericles' early life was still in a period that was not very well documented. He was born a little before the first wave of the Greco-Persian Wars, sometime around 495 BCE. His father was Xanthippus, an Athenian general and politician. His mother was Agariste of the Alcmeonidae family. The Alcmeonides were an ancient and powerful Athenian family. They had a very interesting history, which included a curse, being kicked out of Athens, helping build a temple at the Oracle of Delphi, and last, but not least, attempting to form an alliance with Persia during the Greco-Persian Wars. They were surprisingly powerful in Athens for a family that most of the city actually disliked. Allegedly, before Pericles was born, Agariste had a dream that she gave birth to a lion, a lot of people during his life claimed that this dream was the reason why Pericles had a larger-than-average head. Whatever that has to do with a lion, sure. Comedians in ancient Athens made plenty of jokes at his expense about this physical feature. We can guess that he was well-educated based on his family, but we don't have any firmly placed dates in his life until he was around 23 years old and 472 when he paid for the production of the play The Persians by Aeschylus. The play was about the victory of the Greeks over the Persians at the naval battle of Salamis, but it particularly highlighted the military hero Themistocles. Some historians theorize this was done to spite the man who would be Pericles' political rival, Cimon, also pronounced Cimon, but I'll be using the former. Cimon was openly against democracy, but he was also partly responsible for the exile of Themistocles from Athens after the war. Sticking with Cimon for a second, he had also been a war hero at the Battle of Salamis, but basically did everything to ruin his reputation afterwards. He was tried for accepting bribes from Alexander I of Macedonia, not Alexander the Great by the way, and then cozying up to Sparta who was always Athens' most classic rival in politics. He helped lead an Athenian military force in aid of Sparta against a revolt by a group of lower-class Spartans. However, Sparta decided they didn't really want Athens' help in the matter and turned Cimon and his men back to Athens. This embarrassing episode was the lit match Cimon's political rivals needed in order to light the powder keg of his downfall. In 461 BCE, Pericles, aiding Ephialtes, his mentor in the pro-democracy faction, led the assembly in a vote to ostracize Cimon, ostracize in this case meaning sending into exile. Ephialtes and Pericles took advantage of Cimon's exile in order to finally dismantle the aristocratic powers of the Areopagus. Remember, 
the Areopagus was once the council of old politicians that then became a criminal court. It was Pericles and Ephialtes who finally allowed the lower class to join the Areopagus. But later that year, Ephialtes was assassinated. Through his death, Pericles became the leading name in the pro-democracy party of Athenian politics. In case you were thinking it, no, Pericles did not kill Ephialtes as some sort of power grab. I thought I should just add that in. Also, we're going to take a pretty substantial jump forward in Pericles' life. What are we missing here? Well, it's actually the First Peloponnesian War, a long conflict from 460 to 445 BCE between Athens and its allies against Sparta and its allies. Will we cover it at some point? I don't know. Not to be reductive, but the war essentially boiled down to Sparta fearing the rise of an Athenian empire. Pericles fought in the war and survived. There wouldn't really be much episode left if he had died. Setting aside that war, though, let's bring back the Greco-Persian Wars. As I previously mentioned, the Persians had ransacked Athens during the war, destroying much of its temples and splendor. In 449, during a brief period of peace during the war, the Peloponnesian War, not the Greco-Persian War, Pericles had led an effort to form a meeting of the Greek states in order to go about rebuilding the mess made by the Persians. However, Sparta's refusal to help rebuild saw that course of action fall apart, which also saw Sparta's allies back out. So, taking the next best choice, Athens asked the help of its allies, also known as the Delian League. Luckily, Athens had the funds to start rebuilding without Sparta's help due to the fact that Athens was the home of the treasury for the Delian League, a move that had occurred in 454 thanks in part to the leadership of Pericles. The biggest project championed by Pericles was the rebuilding of the Acropolis. In case you don't know what the Acropolis is, it is, at least in present day, a series of ruins on top of a hill in Athens. If you've seen a photo of Greek ruins, you've probably seen pictures of the Parthenon, a temple on the Acropolis. The Parthenon was a temple to Athena, Greek goddess of war and wisdom, and the patron deity of Athens. There had been a previous temple to Athena, one now known as the Older Parthenon, pretty on the nose there, but that was one of the temples destroyed by the Persians. Because it's my show, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from Pericles to talk about the Parthenon. It's a cool building and one of the most important structures still remaining from ancient Greece. The name Parthenon has a couple possible etymologies. The Greek word Parthenon means an unmarried woman's apartments. Wonderful name for your grand temple to Athena, right? We'll get into that in a moment. The temple was not always referred to as the Parthenon. When it was built, it was either referred to as Onaos, meaning the temple, or the much better name Ekatoperos, roughly meaning the 100-footer. The latter name was not due to its size, but because of its grand design and beauty, basically 100 meaning a lot. But still, you may be asking, why Parthenon? Why name it an unmarried woman's apartments? It's likely that this name was used only for a specific room in the temple for the priestesses of Athena, either where they lived or worshipped. 
the Greek word parthenos however means maiden or virgin. While that term is mostly used for the Greek goddess Artemis, parthenos has also been used as an epithet for Athena. That term is also used at times to refer to the Virgin Mary in Christianity. And, in fact, the temple became a Christian church dedicated to Mary in the 6th century CE. The final possible explanation of the name Parthenon comes from the Greek word Parthenī, meaning maidens, referring to the priestesses of Athena rather than the goddess herself. It is also technically incorrect to call the Parthenon a temple. Many historians agree that, though it may seem like a temple at first glance, its function was probably more artistic than religious. There were no grand sacrifices made within its halls, nor did it actually house a cult of Athena. Yes, there was a massive golden statue of the goddess at the Parthenon, but there's a story linked to Pericles that tells us a bit more about its not necessarily religious importance. During the Peloponnesian War, the second one that started in 430 BCE, not the one we skipped over, Pericles suggested that the city could melt down the golden statue and use it as money for the war effort. If the Parthenon was this incredibly holy place, and given the lack of separation of church and state in ancient Greece, destroying an icon for the temple's goddess, the patron goddess of your city no less, would essentially be dooming your own city. So, the only explanation for Pericles' thinking would be, other than him possibly not being very religious, is that the Parthenon was not the holy temple it appears to be. Now, Pericles did also say that if push came to shove and they had to melt golden Athena, note that in this case they did not, the statue would be rebuilt. So, if the Parthenon wasn't the grand temple to Athena in Athens, what was? Well, we've gone on about the Parthenon for maybe a bit too long anyways. Now you may be thinking, was this episode just an excuse to talk about the Parthenon at length? And my answer to that is... Not originally, no. But moving on, there were several other massive building projects on the Acropolis. Second up is the temple to Athena Nike. Nike, which is where we actually get the name of the shoe brand Nike, was a goddess associated with victory. The two were conflated in a way that represented Athena's religious domain of strategy in war. This temple would mark Athena as a goddess to pray to for Athens' victory over its enemies. There were a couple smaller temples on the Acropolis, but the other major temple was the Erechtheion. This was a temple dedicated to both Athena and Poseidon, god of the sea. This temple was probably the actual holy location for the cult of Athena, as it was dedicated to Athena Polios, an aspect of Athena more so associated with Athens than any other version of the goddess. Besides temples, there was a grand entryway called the Propylaea, which was actually never finished due to the outbreak of the second wave of the Peloponnesian War in 431 BCE. Finally, there was yet another massive statue of Athena built in the courtyard of the Acropolis, this one made of bronze and standing nearly 30 feet tall called the Athena Promachos, meaning Athena who fights on the front lines. With all of these building projects, the Acropolis was a sight to behold, and it was all thanks to the efforts championed by Pericles. Without his desire to bring back the glory days of pre-war Athens, we would not have one of the most iconic ancient buildings of all time. 
Even though he championed democracy and restored the Acropolis in grandly splendor, Pericles was not without his critics. As far as the Acropolis went, it was obviously a major hit for the most part. However, there were opponents to the construction project. One of the most notable opponents to Pericles' grand idea came from Cumon's cousin Thucydides, who is a different person from the Greek historian of the same name. Thucydides denounced the project as being too expensive and overly extravagant. He also made the argument that it was immoral for Pericles to allocate taxes from Athens' allies in order to pay for the Acropolis reconstruction. Pericles' counter-argument was essentially, eh, it's our money now and we're protecting our allies so it doesn't matter. And guess who ended up being exiled for 10 years? Surprise, surprise, it was Thucydides. At this point, Pericles had basically positioned himself as the man keeping Athens together. In fact, Thucydides has an interesting comment about his political rival. When asked who would win in a fight, Thucydides or Pericles, Thucydides said Pericles would win because even if he lost, he would be able to convince everyone else he had won. Another source of criticism came from the reputation of Pericles' family, the Alcmeonids. During the Second Peloponnesian War, the Spartans attempted to get Athens to exile all of the Alcmeonids from the city, Pericles included. Though this would not come to fruition, the Alcmeonidae family would end up disappearing from Athens, spoiler alert, after Sparta won the war. Besides his mother's family, Pericles received criticism based on his choice of romantic partner. Though they were possibly never married, Pericles was in a very close relationship with a woman named Aspasia. She was from Miletus, not Athens, meaning she was not an Athenian citizen. While this might not be the biggest deal, it makes things complicated when it comes to their son, Pericles the Younger. Pericles had championed a cause in 451 BCE that would make it so you could only be considered a citizen if both of your parents were from Athens. However, before Pericles' death, the assembly allowed an exception to be made that would make Pericles the Younger an Athenian citizen and his father's legal heir. Pericles had been married before and had children with his previous wife before they divorced. His older son, Xanthippus, named after Pericles' father, did not hesitate to slander his father about troubles relating to his relationship with Aspasia. Aspasia, who was possibly a courtesan or prostitute, was always in the spotlight as a woman who was corrupting the virtues and morality of other Athenian women. Even in death, Pericles has his critics. In modern times, he's sometimes considered a demagogue and hawkish. If you read into a comment from historian and philosopher Plutarch, he had this to say about Pericles. He was no longer the same man as before, nor like submissive to the people and ready to yield and give in to the desires of the multitude as a steersman to the breezes. What that basically means is, Pericles could no longer be seen as just a regular citizen, but someone with much more power than the rest. With words like that coming from people closer to his own time, it's not surprising historians today would be willing to look at Pericles in a more negative light. There are those that view him as power-hungry and manipulative towards Athens' allies. He may have pushed to bring back grandiosity to his city, but Pericles also tried to heavily expand the power his city had in Greece. 
his critics were worried that Pericles was seeking to build an Athenian empire with him on the throne. Ironically, for a man who supported democracy, his actions in this light could be seen as anything but. Pericles would end up passing away in 429 BCE due to a plague epidemic that swept across Athens. The plague would also take Pericles' two legitimate sons from his first marriage. After his death, Athens would go into a period of decline. The leaders of the pro-democracy faction of Athens who would attempt to step into Pericles' shoes were not as powerful or charismatic. Athens would lose the Peloponnesian War, making Sparta the most powerful city-state of Greece. But what would happen to Athenian democracy? After a failed military campaign in Sicily in 411 BCE, a group of anti-democracy oligarchs overthrew the assembly and established the Council of 400. Democracy would come back only four months later, but not for long. Athens would undergo a cycle of democracy and anti-democracy leadership until Philip II, father of Alexander the Great, conquered Athens in 338 BCE. Democracy would attempt to return after Rome fought off Macedonia, though it was never the same. The aristocracy of Athens, especially under Rome, would always have all the power. Finally, after Augustus became the first emperor of Rome, Athens' democracy was dissolved as it became a part of the Roman Empire. But, as we know, the end of Athenian democracy did not mean an end to democracy for good. Various nations throughout history and up through modern times have experimented with democracy, but very few have had a democracy on the level of Athens. Athenian democracy is mostly similar to what we call direct democracy, wherein the citizens of a society get to vote on matters of a constitution and other laws. There are no countries today that practice direct democracy, however, it does still exist in some locations. Smaller governmental territories within Switzerland and Mexico practice direct democracy. The versions of democracy most commonly practiced today are representative and parliamentary democracy. These are the type of democracy that run the United States and most of Europe. These forms of democracy rely on the citizens of the nation to vote on representatives who preside over the different bodies of government. Sometimes, these types of democracies use direct democracies sparingly, such as votes on referendums. Many of today's modern democracies were heavily influenced by the democracy of ancient Athens. The founding fathers of America were well-read in classic studies and used many ideas of Athenian democracy when drafting the Constitution of the United States. So, though the democracy of Athens was eroded by time and conquest, it still has found a way to persist through time. Though modern Greece might not be a direct democracy, Athens found its way home to democracy in 1975 when a referendum voted to dismantle the Greek monarchy. Pericles may have just been one man in a democracy, but his unwavering commitment to his ideals and the power inherited to him through birth and riches allowed him to become what was essentially president of the Athenian democracy. He may have gone too far at times and made many enemies, but he forever changed Athens with a single construction project that has lasted through millennia. Sometimes, 
Rulers can be both great and terrible. A lot of them usually are. Nonetheless, there is a reason why we refer to most of the 5th century BCE in Athens as the Age of Pericles. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going back to Asia to a man who took charge of Japan, becoming what some people refer to as the first shogun, Minamoto no Yoritomo. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.